Bird of the blunderbuss, epithets numberless, curses the clergy have heaped upon thee. Bringer of happiness, riches and land purchase, or come and talk in my cottage with me. High is their style and loud, mighty are they and proud, since from the landlord you gave them the earth. Wherefore your law-breaking, wherefore your jaw-breaking, only to give a new tyranny birth. How have they treated you, how have they greeted you, when for your acre you asked them one day? How have they stamped and roared when the good wages bored, mildly suggested a wage they should pay? But when the reckoning comes, socialist cleaning brooms, greed and injustice must sweep to the sea. Meanwhile, old Porter Face, come to my dwelling place, faith it won't hurt to listen you to listen to me. That was a poem called To an Old Moonlighter, written by Liam O'Brosnahan, also known as William Brosnan, Irish Transport and General Workers Union Branch Secretary in Camp, Castle Island, County Kerry, in the years between 1919 and 1921. So basically a key local leader of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in a locality in Kerry in the extreme southwest of Ireland. Now the poem is called To an Old Moonlighter, and Brosnahan's framing is that farmers, or the new tyranny, were dismissive of the people who gave them the earth in the struggle against landlords, and now they haughtily reject demands for higher wages or for cottage gardens. The Moonlighters were the agrarian guerrillas of earlier decades. You're listening to Peters and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. Make sure to subscribe to get future episodes and make sure to share the news of this podcast. So in this episode, we're going to look at the debate around agrarian policy and the workers' movement in the early 1920s, uh, a debate against the backdrop of the 1923 Land Act and the Agricultural Commission, which set agricultural policy for the new free state. But rather than reading all that from the centre, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the rural transport union branches and from individual local activists who wrote into the labour press in the letters pages of the Voice of Labour and in an essay competition which was ran in the Voice of Labour and in the resolutions passed at branch meetings. So from the bottom up, and as much as possible, I'm going to try and foreground and highlight those voices. And we'll finish up uh, by looking a bit at James Connolly, his writings on agriculture and how he did not, in fact, hibernicise Marxism. Putting Connolly in there because I think his writings were an important part of the intellectual context of the debates in the early 1920s. So I'm going to start off with looking at a resolution from a West Limerick um, branch of the Transport Union, which dates from January 21st, 1923. And essentially that resolution, that set of demands, had three major components, which were expanded cottage gardens, land division and compulsory tillage. So expanded cottage gardens because kitchen production and small-scale trade were carried on across the social spectrum in this period. So you had growing veg for the kitchen and keeping pigs and poultry on the smallest farm to the largest, in the cottage garden of the labourer, right up to the walled garden of the big house of the landlord. Then the other component was land division, right? So you have the 1923 Land Act at this time, which was a pivot from tenant purchase of their holdings from landlords, which had been the emphasis of land legislation up till then, the pivot from that to land redistribution. Now, the 1923 Act was still about land purchase, but there was much more of a land redistribution component coming in, and there was yet more of it to come in with the 1932 Land Act. So the question is, who gets the land which is being divided up? 
And considerable amounts of it was, maybe as much as uh, 20% of uh, farmland in the 26 county state. But by and large, that redistribution was from the landed with many acres to the landed with few acres. The landless, more often than not, did not benefit. Even employees of the estates being redistributed had to fight their corner to be included. In fact, arguably, land redistribution was inimical to the interests of the rural working class because smaller farmers, smaller farms rather, made for more farms that could be operated by family labour and hence less employment. Uh, there are actually instances of farm workers organising to prevent larger farms from being broken up and redivided um, into smaller properties. And then the, the, the final major component of the resolution from West Limerick was for compulsory tillage. Now, that was the policy during the First World War and the immediate years after it. This was a policy favoured by workers because it meant more employment and reduced food costs. Now, this resolution was broadly similar to other resolutions made by county delegate conferences of farm workers in the previous years, uh, especially back in 1921. Subsequently, the Voice of Labour um, carried a letter in response to that resolution, a letter from the chairman of the Burr branch, Burr County Offaly branch, uh, which is in the newspaper on the 24th, 24th of February 1923. The, the chairman of the Burr branch was uh, Michael Dalton. And his disagreement is that a resolution from Limerick, from West Limerick, was just, just calling for a, a um, compulsory tillage scheme to till 5% of arable land, which the Burr branch felt, felt was inadequate and they were asking for 25%. So late in 1922 and early in 1923, around the same time as this uh, exchange of letters and resolutions, the Voice of Labour ran an essay competition for an agricultural policy for the union. In autumn of that year, Congress, the collective voice of Irish trade unions, adopted the policy that, quote, the future prosperity of Irish agriculture resides in the cooperative administration and the development of small holdings and the planting of the larger farms and untenanted land with the propertyless workers on the basis of common ownership. This was similar to the main thrust of, the, of many of the essays entered into the competition and published in The Voice of Labour, including the winning essay penned by Liam Kelly of Grange Tulla, County Carlow. He advocated state-sponsored cooperative farms as a stopgap until international revolution. Another view came from John Anger of Carberry, County Kildare, advocating for land division into 50 or 60 acre holdings, something which, he argued, would reduce competition for jobs among the remaining, remaining landless people. A dissenting opinion came in a letter from the Secretary of the Mount Collins West Limerick section of the ITW in response to the essay from Carlo. Um, the Mount Collins branch secretary wrote, quote, What I am concerned about is the lot of the married farm worker with a family to support. Golden promises that may perhaps take 10 or 20 years to materialise will never give him the wherewithal to pay his rent or purchase the necessaries of life. We must find a present policy. What should that policy be? Why not a land campaign now at once? Give the codier an extra acre of land and enable him to feed his family without sending them out to the farmers for their feeding, as I have seen it done. Give him a chance to keep a cow. End quote. That was the popular policy in the rural branches. In 1922, the Transport Union conducted a questionnaire of the rural branches. A hundred branches responded. And that policy, the extra acre, was the major part of the response and the extension of employment insurance to farm workers. Michael Donnelly of 22 Whitefriars Street, Dublin, entered the essay contest and his contribution, which was published in late January 1923, advocated cooperative farming. Donnelly responded in the letters pages of the Voice of Labour on February 17th, 1923, uh, responding to um, this letter from West Limerick advocating an extra acre and a land campaign. 
So Donnelly's argument was that college gardens would make for economic inefficiency and economic individualism. There would be little breeding grounds of the capitalist system and there was just their dismissal as unpractical in the Congress report of 1923. But that seems a bit odd because rural council cottages already had plots. Rural council cottages came with plots of half an acre up to 1892 and then the council houses built afterwards had up to one acre. One demand coming to the fore during the revolutionary years was that these plots would be expanded considerably so that families could do more than grow vegetables, keep poultry and keep pigs. With extra acres, they could also keep a cow and have their own milk supply. So there's a strong stress there with Donnelly on collective ownership and cooperative farming, which is more similar to what Congress approved in the autumn of 1923. Congress, the representative body of the trade unions, as I was saying, adopted the policy that, quote, the future prosperity of Irish agriculture resides in the cooperative administration and development of small holdings and the planting of the larger farms and untenanted lands with the propertyless workers on the basis of common ownership. Now, I'm going to pause with that for a while and we can take a look at Michael Donnelly because he was actually quite an interesting character and we have at least two accounts of him written by his comrade Frank Robbins. Robbins was a participant in and historian of the Irish Citizens Army That's the transport union-linked militia that took part in the separatist insurrection in Dublin in 1916. In some ways, talking about Donnelly is a bit of a tangent, but it's very interesting to have some of the background and some of the people involved in the debates and Robin's stories of Donnelly centre both important elements of the revolution and tell us something about how parts of the revolution were remembered or in fact not remembered. So this is a quote from his uh, Bureau of Military History witness statement. Quote, We nicknamed Michael Donnelly the bishop because of the fact that when advocating socialist theories as against the present-day capitalist system, he always quoted scripture, his strong line on most occasions being the Sermon on the Mount, where it is said that it is harder for the rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get to the eye of a needle. Donnelly worked as a casual docker at the North Wall. One evening he was very worried about a development that was likely to take place at what was known as the military boat, which used to discharge at the North Wall extension. It was expected that this boat would be taking supplies into Ireland for the Black and Tans and the British Army. And Donnelly's view was that these supplies should be stopped at their source and no attempt should be made to unload any ship carrying arms to supply the British forces in Ireland. He and I discussed the matter at length and we both agreed that some effort should be made to prevent the unloading taking place. Later in the evening, Donnelly contacted William O'Brien and Thomas Foran and convinced them of the logic of his idea. The reaction of both these men was to send a telegram to the Union delegate, Larry Redmond, to proceed to the North Wall extension next morning and hold up the ship. That was the, uh, this was the germ of the idea that brought about the munitions of war strike of 1920. Um, end quote. Uh, Robbins also talks about how when Donnelly died, it was too late to get the, the news into the newspapers, so he tried to get the news into uh, RT radio. It was basically spurned because Michael Donnelly was apparently not as an, an important enough figure, um, which is... To my mind, it illuminates something of how the, uh, the revolution was, was remembered in the subsequent decades and in the conservative Ireland of the 1940s and 1950s and so on. Um, so let's get back to what Donnelly had to say in the agrarian policy debate. Donnelly is positing collective ownership as if socialism was imminent. And the thing is, to understand this period, we have to understand that is what some people, a lot of people expected. They expected really radical change worldwide in their lifetimes, uh, either the abolition of the capitalist system or radical reform to prevent that from happening. This is where we were at in the years immediately after the First World War. Now, obviously, we have the benefit of hindsight, 
But if we want to understand those years, we have to understand something of how people at the time thought and what was significant at the time may not necessarily be what seems significant 20 or 30 years later. There was another story, a story other than the establishment of the two-party political system or the division of Ireland into two states. And we can look back and we can see how the future we live in was created. But we also need to go back and look at how another future wasn't created. And in fact, that non-creation shapes our world as much as, if not more so, than anything else. So let's get back to what Donnelly was saying. And he makes a central claim there. Quote, the workers can put labour in the majority if they wish, end quote. Either himself or the editor put that under the heading Organised for Political Power. He was referring to parliamentary and local government elections. Now, leaving to one side the rather big issue as to whether the bourgeois state can be an instrument of the establishment of socialism or not, we actually get to the kernel of understanding the Irish Revolution, I feel, if we unpack Donnelly's claim that the workers can put labour in the majority if they wish. Because this simply wasn't the case. There wasn't a working class majority in Irish society, certainly not outside the industrial northeast. In fact, if anything, Irish separatism was separating most of Ireland from the UK, which did have a working class majority. Now, I'm going to be very specific about my language here. I'm talking about the working class and the technical class in itself sense. So I'm talking about the sellers of labour power, people who work for a wage. Uh, It's necessary to be very specific here because one encounters all kinds of notions around the concept. So from Donnelly's perspective, this class was a class with radical change, in that it had the capacity, the potential agency, to transform society. But it simply was not, contrary to Donnelly, the Irish majority. If we look at who constituted the agrarian workforce, and agriculture was the main industry of most of Ireland, who constituted the agrarian workforce was split between farmers and wage workers. Farmers, broadly speaking here, because I'm including the so-called assisting relatives, as well as the actual farm owner. In Irish agriculture, labour was mobilised through kinship relations, not just through wages. And depending on what stats you use, you can get a working class majority across the south and east. But only in four counties was there double the number of farm workers to farmers. And in other stats, I think only Dublin had a farm worker majority. So this issue is the issue you are dealing with in a country where there is a predominant preponderance of what is known as petty commodity producers. And how does the organised labour movement speak to them, if indeed it does speak to them? Now, I wouldn't pay too much heed to a lot of what ends up in Tim Pat Coogan's books. But there's a great anecdote in one of his older works, his History of the IRA, where I think it was a Republican Congress meeting in Louth in the 1930s. I don't have the book to hand. And while listening to a speaker wax on the wonders of socialism and collective ownership and so forth, a portly farmer stands up and exclaims, Be God and you'll not get my pigs. Now, maybe the be God and you'll not get my pigs anecdote, actually, maybe it never happened. But it illustrates the issue. So where was the left discussion about this? Well, go back to look at the intellectual inheritance. Back to the writings of James Connolly. So basically to Connolly, quote, the doom of the petty farmers of Ireland was coming. In 1909, writing in the New York Socialist publication The Harp, which was aimed at Irish America, Connolly claimed, quote, The question of whether Irish peasants are paying too much or too little for their farms under the new land acts does not depend upon the quality of their lands so much as it depends upon the agricultural prices. And agricultural prices depend upon the development of the transatlantic steam service bringing the product of the mammoth farms of the United States and South America to Europe. Every Lusitania which shortens the distance between Europe and America hastens the doom of the petty farmers of Ireland under the capitalist system. End quote. Now, it follows from what Connolly is arguing there 
if global competition would wipe out the small farmers, that there is indeed no need to pay much any attention to this sector of society. They will become proletarians in England or New England and join the ranks of the great proletarian labour movement. But in fact, this isn't what happened. The petty farmers of Ireland held on under the capitalist system because everything is actually more complicated than Connolly presents. James Connolly is often credited with hibernicising Marxism, but in fact he wrote very little about agriculture, the main industry in most of Ireland. His small number of articles on the topic were in response to specific moments of agrarian mobilisation, such as the United Irish League or the Ranch War, or to the 1898 subsistence crisis. In them, he expressed what was a very orthodox position within the parties of the Second International. Competitive pressures would drive small farms out of business until there was only colossal agribusinesses. There was no need, therefore, for an agrarian policy which took into consideration the continued presence of comparatively small-scale producers and their political weight. The initial conflict between orthodoxy and revisionism within the German Social Democrat Party, then by far the main Marxist organisation in the world, was over precisely this issue, with Kautsky defending the orthodox position against a revisionism emanating from southern Germany. Southern Germany was the part of Germany with a predominance of smaller farms worked by family labour and in which the Social Democrat Party was overshadowed by the Catholic Centre Party. Kautsky's contribution was part of the intellectual process of recognition that there were in fact special features of agriculture, or at least some branches of it, which made it more resistant to the centralisation of capital and other industries. He was nonetheless opposed to any agrarian policy in the interests of the small farmers. The debate became known as the agrarian question, and it can be further divided into an agrarian question of capital, what changes within agriculture were needed for the further development of capitalism, so for instance the agrarian sector as a source of investment funds, workers and a home market, and then there's the agrarian question of labour, what policies should socialist parties take towards agriculture in contexts where there was still a predominance of small-scale independent producers. The triumvirate of priest, patriot and peasant has long been invoked as an explanation of the paucity of left-wing politics in modern Ireland, and that may make this question seem nonsensical. However, the success of Nordic social democracy rested on alliances with farmer parties, while the French and Italian communist parties won significant support among farmers. Arguably, this was for a reformist rather than a revolutionary policy for parties that were operating within capitalism rather than rupturing out of it. What Labour historian Emmett O'Connor has called the mental colonisation of the Irish Labour movement, the orientation to British norms, was hardly dispelled then by the adoption of specifically Irish organisation or by gelling with Irish nationalism. This is particularly relevant as agrarian development in Britain was very much particular to Britain. That and its precocious industrialisation made it the society where the agrarian question was least relevant. A sort of corporate cooperative model was the core of the agrarian policy adopted by the Irish labour movement. And this was premised on what Connolly called the doom of the petty farmers of Ireland in the face of global competition. Furthermore, an essential part of the intellectual context were notions of the inevitability of socialism. This was shaped in part by the currency of a very deterministic form of Marxism, but also by the practical reality of the coming into being of a new social force of organised workers in the wake of the Second Industrial Revolution. Much of the politics of the time was inflected by the sense that this force would transform the social world or that society had to change in various ways in order to incorporate it. While it seems almost unbelievable now, continental social democrat parties were explicitly socialist in this period 
and socialists meant a root and branch transformation of society into something fundamentally different. Moreover, areas of the European mainland where social democracy was comparatively weak were not politically quiescent, but were home to more explosively insurrectionary revolutionary traditions. Hence the ongoing wave of revolution and general strikes from Petrograd to the Ruhr to Barcelona. This international context was very much the intellectual context of the transport union. So if you read their newspaper, you, like they're talking about the situation in Italy. They're, ta- they're obviously influenced by the industrial workers of the world in the US. They're part of this wider revolutionary wave. Now, ultimately, as regards agrarian policy, uh, a big idea was a scheme of cooperative marketing, which in fact proved to be something of a, of a damn squib. We leave it at that for today. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the project on social media. Now, a good bit of the research that went into this um, this episode, I'm also writing up into a book chapter for a forthcoming volume called The Spirit of Revolution, which I'm also editing, which looks at the Irish Revolution um, from below and is a, a collection of local case studies. So make sure to keep an eye out for that. It's coming out later this year with Four Courts Press. <laughs>